podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another uh, Wagon Wheel Chat over on Spotify Green Room, which we obviously will show on our YouTube page and we'll go up on the Red Inca feed. And I don't know, maybe if you're in my office, you can also listen to it. I'm not, I'm being streamed from so many different directions. I'm not actually sure what's going on at any one time. Thanks again to our sponsors. I've got the um, Bodyline t shirt on here. It just looks like a skull, but there's a cricket bat and stump underneath it, I promise you. Uh, and also, big, big shout out to manscaped.com. Um, they are, you know, if you want your testicles to be smoother, I can't think of a better place to do that for you, honestly. Um, probably better than getting it done in a car park is uh, is the best way of doing it. Although I did get shaved very well in a Mahali car park once, but... That's a story for another time. Uh, if you want a 20% off discount for manscaped.com, you can get it uh, by putting in the code Red Inca, all one word. Um, and then that gets you free worldwide shipping and a 20% discount to make your balls less hairy. And, you know, who doesn't want to be that? Also, a uh, reminder that you can um, uh, support us on the podcast by going to Buy Me a Coffee. I forgot the name of that one there. Um, uh, I know a lot of people have trouble with Patreon, so you can go to Buy Me a Coffee and just support us there. Or you can go to Patreon. And in fact, if you go to Patreon and you do the, I don't know, whatever it is, £5 and above tier, you also get to ask questions first on this here podcast, like Duncan has. Be like Duncan, everyone. Go and support us on Patreon. Uh, It's just Jared Kimber Patreon. Uh, Duncan says, when the newspapers do these bullshit marks out of 10 reviews of all the players in a test match, do the players read them out and have a good laugh about it or do, the pre- do they pretend like they haven't read it? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a nonsense thing. I think everyone in the game knows it's nonsense. It's filler. It's content. Um, it's probably, you know, disappointing uh, that it still exists. I don't think... Oh, actually, I was asked to do them once for TalkSport and it's so stupid. You... I did, <laughs> it, if you really gave someone a lot of time to do it properly, um, they would. But you're literally going on short memory spans of a journalist who's trying to bang this out with three other pieces. Uh, whether the players have a look at them or not, I don't know. I'd say um, I think in general players, you know, read the newspapers they read, uh, read the websites they read, um, and they. Is, there are some players who obviously read everything. There are some players who only read stuff about themselves, um, and, you know, uh, it just depends on the player. But I, I don't know if the players care that much about it. I've never had a player complain to me about any. I don't know. Did Crick Info do them when I was there? I can't remember. But I've never had a player complain about them, as far as I'm aware. Christopher Hart says, if we if the best young talent prioritise white ball cricket due to more opportunities and money, how do some... Uh, how do at some point do we try and get them wanting to play test cricket? Thinking of the likes of Puran, who's played five first-class games, surely test cricket is potentially losing generational talents because there's no incentives for them to go and play. Puran, it should be pointed out, didn't hasn't only played five first-class games because he didn't want to play first-class cricket. He had a fight with the Trinidad and Tobago cricket board um, over them not paying for his rehab when he had a car accident. Uh so, I mean, imagine having a player that talented and literally causing a riff with them that early on in their career. But that's what they did in Trinidad. I think if you talk to Nicholas Perrant, uh, he might have some words for you about Gus Logie, who may not be his favourite person in the world. 
Um, but yeah, as a general rule, I think that's quite fair. I would say that if you're an Indian, English, Australian cricketer, even Bangladeshi cricketers, I think, quite well paid to play test cricket. I think Bangladesh might be one of the other countries that, considering what the players earn in other formats of cricket, do quite well for test cricket. Um, you can certainly make a livelihood there, but you could see through the sort of coal pack era, um, you know, the South African cricketers, the Zimbabwean cricketers, the West Indian cricketers, obviously, uh, didn't, you know, felt more comfortable to have a county career, which is not, you know, you're not getting millions of dollars playing county cricket, getting maybe 150,000 pounds at the sort of top end. And they were happy to take that over being test players. That kind of tells you what the pay is like. So yeah, that is a, that is a big problem. And it's one of the reasons why I've said that the players should be paid out of a central fund, not by per country where we're creating a system that is only going to benefit the richest teams for no real reason. Why would, why would England want not want the other teams to be at least strong enough that they can, you know, make money off them when they tour them. It doesn't really make any sense. And that's a system that we currently have. Sandeep says, is pink ball test matches that bad for batters? There have already been two triple centuries in 16. Uh, <laughs> this is a funny question. Um, uh, because I just wrote about all this today. Uh, okay. Are pink ball tests bad for batters? Yes, uh, they are. I think the global average in the time of pink ball tests is 29.5 for test matches. And for day-night game test matches, it's 25.24. There are a bunch of v- venues, under four or five at least off the top of my head, that are at the same mark or just below that mark in, the, in that same period uh, of time. Although... Bridgetown, I think, might have had a pink ball test, uh, which might have lowered its um, average down a little bit as well. But yeah, there is. There's no doubt that. Um, there's no doubt that they're harder for batters. I don't think they're like. There's some of the talk I saw coming out of England before this. It's like, have you guys even watched these pink ball games? Like, then it doesn't ping around the way that you would think it would. Also most of the wickets don't fall under the lights. In fact, it's much easier to bat under the lights than it is not under the lights in a pink ball game so far, which is, again, contrary to what everyone says. Uh, but if you want to read more about it, I've written that on my sub stack and, uh, uh, and there'll be a YouTube video. In fact, by this point, being that unless you're listening to me live on the green room, um, that's, already, um, that's already happened. So um, you can go and find them. But yes, it is, it is harder to, to bat. But it is only, as you say, it's only 16 games and we have had a couple of triple, oh, this is the 17th. We have had a couple of triple centuries as well. Um, and the wickets uh, the wickets have often fell in just huge clusters that don't always make a lot of sense either. Um, you know, think of it, um, you know, India's 36 not out. Um, uh, there's also been a couple of smaller teams that have struggled in day-night tests like Bangladesh and Zimbabwe. Um, not to mention England got done on a, on a wicket where no one thought that was going to happen. No one thought the ball was going to behave in that way, I, I suppose I should say. So... There's certainly been some weird day-night tests um, so far, but because it's only 17, I don't know if we know if it's a pattern or not. Um, but it's certainly worth keep, keeping an eye on. Ranna says, uh, with the impressing showing of Namibia in the recent T20 World Cup and the qualification of Uganda in the under-19s, uh, do you see growing, the game growing in, um, in Africa outside the traditional strongholds of South Africa and Zimbabwe? Um do you think the game can grow further if T20 franchises in the PSL, blah, 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 um, scout for talent in Namibia, Kenya, and Uganda like the NBA did? Uh, yes. I mean, very much so. I mean, we've certainly seen what's happened with Nepal and Afghanistan. Uh, Uganda has been getting stronger over the last couple of years. Namibia is probably still, I don't know if you would scout for talent there yet, but 
you might, if you're clever, look, look, if these games are run properly, uh, the IPL franchises would probably have a system where they might have, or even the IPL itself might have academies in Africa, um, you know, Central America, South America, Europe, other parts of Asia, where they develop this talent and can get them in. And, you know, if you, maybe you could have one player from Africa on your squad that you don't have to pay any extra money for um, into your salary cap, I should say. You have to play, pay the player, obviously. All these things are, you know, very, very what what the more mature leagues are looking at doing. Uh, if you had a free agency system and a draft system, um, perhaps, and you didn't have to, you know, reset your academy, uh, your reset your squad after four years, you might actually just do this yourself if you're an IPL team, um, and that's what's probably holding us back. But yeah, there was there's obviously a lot of talent there. Uh, Kenya made a World Cup semi final. Uh, we know that there's talent in Africa. Um, we know there's talent everywhere. People it's not like if just because you're born in a country that happens to already have test playing status you're more predisposed to play cricket is it so realistically getting the game out there would make a lot more sense um i think that's probably very very fair how do i get this there we go um uh, jim it says if a batter crashes into the stumps while running is it a hit wicket dismissal no um but this is not the kind of questions we answer on this podcast. Uh, Ian says, peak Anderson in typical English conditions or peak Cummins in Australian conditions. Who would you rather have in your team? I'd rather have peak Anderson in typical English conditions only because peak uh, peak English conditions are better or typical English conditions are better than Australian conditions. So uh, if you ask me which bowler I would choose, I'll probably always choose Cummins because Cummins gives you more flexibility with what he can do. And, um, you know, you can, you know, as we saw to, uh, in in the second test of uh, the Ashes, you know Stokes was having to rush up, uh, rush up, uh, having to rough up the batters with short balls, whereas Cummins can do that and bowl pitched up, uh, whereas Anderson can't. So um, I think that's probably uh, why I would do that. Uh, why I would pick Cummins over Anderson. PDP Peter Delapena asks Boxing Day New Year's cricket. Uh, sounds like a great idea if you're a fan who has a choice in the matter by attending in person or watching TV with family and friends. But what are your thoughts and experiences as a cricket journalist when you're expected to work a game match that takes place over a traditional family holiday, uh, especially when that work ends up dragging you away from your family while everyone else gets to enjoy the day with theirs? Look, I'm not a big holiday person, so I'm probably the worst possible person to ask about this. Um, you know, I celebrate Christmas because my wife does, really. Um, I'm, it's just a day before a test match for me. Uh, and also for me, you got to remember PDP that my family is in Melbourne. So even if I'm being dragged away from my wife and children, I'm still seeing my parents and cousins and aunties and uncles, friends um, back in Melbourne. So it's very weird for me. I think it, it's always been an interesting one. Uh, if you work in cricket, there's a lot of games that are over Christmas or around Christmas that pull you away. It's, you know, it's, a great job, but it has, I think it has side effects. I think that there are some people um, who really, it does really bother. Um, that's never been particularly me. So even in, in the case, you know, even if it wasn't a Melbourne test and it was an Adelaide test um, or if I was in South Africa or like I was last year, um, uh, I don't think I've ever had to do India at Christmas, but um, I know friends have. Um, I don't. I don't think it would bother me as much, but yeah, I think it does affect people. I always thought it was weird that Cricket Australia did media on Christmas Day, like you know, Mike Hussey in a Santa hat and Peter Siddle in a Santa hat and other people in Santa hats. Um, 
I find that very odd. Uh, but me personally, it doesn't bother. But yeah, there's certainly other journalists uh, over the years that I think have got quite sad on those days. I think that's, I, I think that one of the few times the cricket media sort of is quite good is, you know, it will come together a little bit at Christmas and make sure that, or at least try to make sure that people are not on their own. Um, although, you know, it's everyone works for different organisations and isn't always friends with everyone. So it's not always easy to do those things. But I think more often than not, those things happen around Christmas just because people know. Um, oh, that's Patreon. All right. So thank you to everyone from Patreon. And let's see what we've got some requests here. Sam, you're on the air. Hi, Jared. I'm so, audible. Yes, you are. What's your question? Just talk about wobble ball. A mm-hmm. lot of tests are becoming polar dominant. I uh, kind of yeah. want to ask you about, is it just the wobbling nature of the scene that makes it difficult or is there some amount of backspin or change in pace that also helps the bowlers and makes it difficult for the background? No, what makes it difficult is very, very clear. Essentially, if you, Sam, were an international batter and I got you to face uh, 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 Saranga Lakmal in, in a net session, and Saranga Lakmal came into bowl and he released the ball and after two metres I turned all the lights off and you couldn't see. If Saranga Lakmal was bowling seam up or if he was bowling an outswinger or an inswinger, you would already have a bit of an idea what was happening. You would have seen his wrist position, you would have seen the ball come out and you would have, would have seen what the ball had done since it had travelled. You have an, a rough idea of what is going to happen with that delivery. Whereas if it was me who's never played first-class cricket, all I would see is a bunch of limbs moving around. I wouldn't be able to focus in the right area and I wouldn't be anywhere near the right position, even with the lights on or off, right? What the wobble ball does is takes away all those clues. You don't know what the bowler is trying to set you up for because the bowler doesn't know what they're trying to set you up for with the wobble ball. You don't know if it's going to go out go straight or come in. And that is where the biggest problems come for a batter because all those clues at 140 Ks, or even at 130 Ks, all those clues are what separates them from us, right? The things that they can pick up, you know, there's been legendary um, studies about this, you know, with, well, if you go back to Don Bradman, there's that rumor that he was let go from the army for having poor eyesight. Yet when he went back to test cricket, he still managed to make runs after World War II. And the reason is that, even though he had, very, he might have had very good eyesight probably when he was younger, most batters do have at least very good eyesight, although not supersonic eyesight, and they have good reflexes. They don't generally have much better reflexes or eyesight than a general person, right, or than a bowler, for instance. But what they tend to have is the ability to read all the different signs as the ball is coming down. If you take one of those signs away and you're bowling at over 130 kilometres an hour, they start to struggle more. And I think that is what the wobble ball has really done is it does not allow batters to understand what the bowler is trying to do. Okay, so it's more of a movement through the air rather than off the pitch, the kind of deception involved there. No, it's movement off the pitch. So the, what the wobble ball does is it can swing, and but very rarely does it swing. It usually swings after pitching, which can be slightly confusing. No, no, it's the ball generally, if you have a look at wobble balls, they go dead straight from the hand to the point that, of, which they, of which they're pitched. But when they hit the pitch, you don't know what part of the seam it's going to hit. And so because you don't know what kind of what part of the seam the ball is going to pitch, hit, if it's going to hit the seam at all, you don't know if it's going to go left, right, or straight. So it's all about what it does seeming. It's basically, if it's like blindfolding a batter. So before, if you were trying to get the ball to seam in one direction or the other, you would give the batter a bit of a clue. We're taking the clue away, 
all right? So we're taking the, the slanted seams away. So you now have no idea. So it's almost like bowling uh, straight up uh, seam, except for the fact that even then most bowlers have a have a delivery that goes one way or the other, whereas when we wobble ball, even they can't control which way the ball is going to seam. Um, and the seam is less consistent and more random, plus it can skid um, because it might hit the smoother part of the ball as well. So it's doing all sorts of things that a normal seam delivery won't do. Okay, yeah, it's also interesting you mentioned that it's swing ball for pitches. That, that's interesting to know. Yeah, it's very rare. To be honest, that isn't the bigger problem because usually if it swings after it pitches, it usually swings too late to bother the batter. It's usually gone by that point, but it can swing after pitching. I, I mean, kind of any ball can swing after pitching um, if the seam gets in, in the right direction, which is sometimes what happens with the wobble ball. But the problem isn't the swing. It's all about the seam and what it does. And then what bowlers have done is they've basically realized that if you angle it in, so if you bowl from a little bit wider of the stumps and you angle every ball in at the stumps, batters have to play more. And then the other thing is making sure that it doesn't bounce over the stumps too often. So you keep LBW and bowls in play. Cheers, Jared. That was pretty interesting to know. No problems. Cheers. Thanks for your question. All right. Who is next here? Jimmy Boy. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So I had a couple of questions about fast bowling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about this wobble ball. Just now. Like, right. Two seconds ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want to ask you something related to that. That, uh, and we are seeing common trend among bowlers nowadays is bowlers like Pat Cummins and Mohamed Siraz, even Glenn Magdha did it in his time. They used to angle the ball into the right hand. Like uh, they are bowling from 11 o'clock, not exactly 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock. So mm-hmm. why are more bowlers not being that? It makes bad play, even at wide deliveries. Yeah, it does. But I don't think, t- like, it's it's not the easiest thing to do, especially at high pace. Um, I think it's probably the first thing. Also, it's not, it's, as far as I'm aware, it's only the last couple of years we've realized that this is a really ad, ad, advantage ad, uh, advantage uh, that gives this gives bowlers any advantage. Like, I mean, you're talking about something that's happening in real time in front of you. Um, uh, traditionally, the thought was to take the ball away from the batters. And the best way to take the ball away from the batters is with a lower arm, not with a higher arm or, as you say, an arm past the perpendicular. <coughs> so, so I think traditionally... That is that is the major problem uh, with that. Um, but yeah, I think as bowlers start to angle the ball more and more in um, to take it away, which we're seeing also with right arm bowlers coming around the wicket to left handed batters, uh, you might see more people whose actions are more naturally that. But I would have thought probably traditionally people would have been coached out of doing that rather than coached into doing that. Yeah, and another thing, why don't uh, left arm bowlers generally bowl uh, in swingers to left handers? Yes, I have watched cricket for a decade or so, but I have a, mm-hmm. only one bowler that I can remember who that, did that consistently, Zahir Khan. He always used to get Graham Smith out with that in-swinger. Why don't they do uh, that? Well, I don't think, um, I don't think, well, Zahir Khan, I think that was mostly reverse swing as well, wasn't it? But why don't they do that? I can tell you exactly why they don't do that. And it's the same reason that left-arm finger spinners don't have a ball that spins the other way. But right armers can bowl both in swingers and out swingers to right hand. But I don't see left armers bowling the conventional yep. in swinger to left armers. You're right. But I just explained it. I'll explain it again. It's the same reason we don't see left arm finger spinners with Deucerus, right? I think there's only been one. Arath might have had one that he flicked out the front of his hand. You don't find that weird? It's exactly the same thing that you've just said, right? And the reason is. In swinger. This way is illegal. I mean, it's very hard. No, to but there were hundreds of off spinners doing it around the world. Right? 
and we had one regular left arm finger spinner who could bowl it. And and it's not just the um, Dusra because it's the Karen ball as well, which which is what Harath was bowling. I don't think he had a Dusra; he had a Karen ball. Okay, so I've now told you there are two left arm bowlers who are very limited, right? So it's not about in swing and out swing, and it's not about Dusra, and it's not about um, Karen balls. What it's about is the fact that most left arm bowlers are more limited than right arm bowlers. So the left arm bowlers that are incredibly skillful, so Zahi Khan. Was him Akram, maybe could have put Bruce Reed back in that in the day. Those are except or Jim, Alan David, even Alan Davidson, I think only spun the, uh, swung the ball one way. I could be wrong with that, but I've only ever seen him swing the ball back in um, to right handers and uh, not away from right handers. Uh, is because, but he does have a crab means thick quarter ball, not exactly an uh, outswing. Yeah, it's in second, you say most general okay. commons do that. They bowl a three uh, quarter ball that just pitches are in. Was the other way? Yeah, that was my question. Actually, yeah, I know, but that's what well, I'm trying to answer it. You keep talking over me, <laughs> so, so, so essentially, what what the reason is is that left arm players are not as skillful as right arm players. There aren't as many of them, and most of them are promoted not because they're skillful, but because they are left armed. They don't then have to get these other skills because the majority of the batters that they play against, uh, they already have they already have a tactical advantage over. Any left-arm bowler has a tactical advantage over a right-handed batter. And even with the left-handed batters, to be fair, um, less so with left-arm finger spin, but certainly with left-arm pace. Um, left-arm pace usually does very well against left-arm uh, left-handed batters as well. They have a natural advantage. They're not as skillful. Mitchell Stark is not as skillful as most right arm bowlers in world cricket but he's tall and he's fast and he bowls with his left arm and it doesn't matter right so they don't develop partly through bad coaching and i've had this conversation with a first class coach recently when he asked me a very similar question but he was asking about left arm finger spinners and i said that they're not forced to develop these other skills if you've got if you're coaching an off spinner and a left arm finger spinner or a right arm seamer and a left arm seamer you should be coaching them exactly the same way we don't do that in cricket we don't teach them in swing and out swing. Left arm bowlers have an advantage. Yeah, of course they do, because there aren't many of them. Ten percent of the del- deliveries at, at test level, as compared to right armers. Yeah, but ten percent of the balls in in professional cricket are bowled by left arm seam bowlers. And if you go to club cricket or school cricket, it's probably five percent of bowlers are left arm seam bowlers. Almost, if you're an if you're a left arm seam bowler and you can bowl at eighty miles an hour, you're probably playing first class cricket. And if you can bowl at 85 miles an hour, you've probably played international cricket. That is how scarce left-arm seam bowlers are. So their skill level is just not as high. And partly that's also they're not coached as well because they, they're taught just keep swinging it back, keep swinging it back. Well, I'll tell you what, as once Akram showed us 35 years ago, whenever it was, 30 years ago, um, if you're a left-arm seam bowler and you can swing the ball away from a right hander, you are basically unplayable, right? And we now know that from all the right-armers who do it to left-handers. So why isn't every left-hander being given that skill? And even if they can't do that, we saw Mitchell Johnson come around the wicket early in his career and bowl cutters and be unplayable, right? We've seen Mustafiza do it as well. We literally know that angle works. Why aren't left-arm bowlers being taught to develop their skill more, right? And that's a failure of cricket coaching, but it also comes down to the fact that a lot of left-arm bowlers just aren't that skillful. It is actually very rare to find a highly skillful bowler. In fact, when I was talking to this first-class coach recently about this, he was asking about, when when he was talking about left-arm finger spinners, I said, can you tell me how many left-arm seam bowlers in county cricket can swing the ball away from right-handers? 
And he was like, uh, and I, the only two I can think of was Jack Shantry, and that's because he had a weird bowling action and he couldn't actually swing the ball back into left hand, uh, back into right-handers. The only other one I thought that might have been able to do it was Graham Wagg consistently, uh, who bowls at about 78 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, a very skillful bowler but not a very fast bowler. It's not a common thing because it's that's not what they are. They're fast-tracked through the system. But look at someone like Rahat Ali. Like He has no discernible fast bowling skills other than pace and being left-armed. If you're a right-arm bowler, he wouldn't, he'd struggle to get a first-class kick at the pace that he bowls and, and, and what he does with the ball. He doesn't he's make the ball. Because he's quite good because he bowls at 85, 88 miles an hour with his left arm. If he was right-armed, he would, he'd be a very, very average cricketer. And it's the same with most left-arm finger spinners. Most left-arm finger spinners do nothing with the ball. It's one of the reasons I'm so excited to see someone like Mark Watt, who is so revolutionary in the way that he changes his speeds, the I different mean, speeds one of he bowls. I've never seen a bowler like that who can bowl locus at, at the end spinner spinner with the locus. That's quite right. We've seen off spinners occasionally do stuff like that because off spinners are a little bit more, you know, a little bit more like that. But if you if you want to read more about it, I'm pretty sure. Actually, it might be in the podcast I did with Nathan Lehman about off spinners and left arm finger spinners. We talk about it there that off spinners are just more talented than left arm finger spinners. But left arm finger spinners have such a huge advantage because you know they can yoink the ball ball away from right handers, and that's sixty six percent of the batters. You're always going to come up against them. It's very rare to come up with a team like Australia at the moment where you have more left handers than right handers. But thanks for your questions, mate. You have a good day. Thanks, Eric. All right, Kartik. Uh, hello. Uh, you know, sorry, I'm asking little uh, weird question. Bear with me. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so my question is, uh, see, uh, if you see teams uh, like England uh, is struggling with their uh, test openers, India is struggling with their middle order test batters, and uh, Australia is struggling to get a proper uh, a second spinner or a, a all rounder. So uh, and they uh, mostly play these uh, World Test Championship matches uh, within the top eight. So my question is, why can't they simply arrange, you know, test matches with the Ireland and Afghanistan or uh, you know uh, uh, outside the WTC and play their second team and uh, see who can perform at a higher level, you know? Uh, and similar thing with the T20s and the One Days, just to have another team uh, like. India had uh, with the Sri Lanka series last time. So they have two teams, so see who can play well and uh, promote them to the main squad. So, so, yeah. Well, I mean, all those problems you talked about before, I don't think are necessarily going to be fixed by what you're saying. Because I think, well, other than India's middle order, which will be fine, you know, Australia can't find an all rounder for 50 years. I don't think it's because they haven't had a strong second 11 team. And England's tried every batter in England and they're not making any runs. But, but uh, so, so what you're saying... They could pick 27 all-rounders against, Scot- against Ireland or Scotland. If they're not good enough, playing against Ireland or Scotland aren't going to make them any better. If they were good enough, they'd be making runs and taking wickets of first-class cricket, right? But I understand your general point is true. There should be a firm second 11 competition going on. Uh, it should probably include some of the non-test playing nations or the, the less test playing nations. It would make the quality of test cricket better. It would help the major teams play. You know, I think A cricket needs to be slightly more organized. We need like a minor league or an A league or, you know, um, sort of system uh, for development for the major teams. Uh, yeah, it would only be good for cricket in any single way. I don't think it would fix the, the problems that you're talking about specifically um, uh, because, 
because of what I've said. But but as a general rule, um, it would be better for cricket. And uh, I think, you know, you see someone like Shreya Sire, you know, someone like him probably just needs to have played more cricket um, outside of India before he plays his first test matches there. So, and, and that happens, you know, probably too often now. So, yeah, I, I mean, that as a general rule would help the associates and would help the major test staying nations. They don't do it because it costs money. Even for big three? Yeah, still costs some money. Uh, they can get uh, sponsors, they can get uh, uh, TV rights uh, or TP rights. I'm really surprised. They, 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 could, could, they could do all those things, but, you know, have you been following cricket for long? Because, you know, they could do millions of things to improve the standard of cricket on the field, the way it's administrated, the way they make money off it. They don't. But it's a great idea. I've, I think I've written about it a couple of times. Uh, thanks for your question. You forgot next. Abraham. Yeah, hi. How you doing? What's your question? So my question is like recently India cricket especially I see a question of you know backing versus unfairness. Uh, so specifically what I mean is like so a player, a young player specifically he develops into a good player once he gets experience of you know playing in international cricket. But then now mm-hmm. India is facing a problem because there are many starting pool of similar talent. For example, uh, for test cricket say like there is Bangil, there is Pukhishna, uh, there is there Padikat, almost a similar talent. And how they become you know, a good test player like you know Sachin or Gravity will come, you know, by playing continuously. But if we play, you know, bad of the continuously, then it would be become unfair towards each other. A good example would be the Sanju versus Prishapan. Uh, again, uh, there was time when both of them were kind of sloppy and trying for unnecessary short. But mm-hmm. again, the team management back Prishapan, uh, and now see what Prishapan has become because of the back. But again, it was yeah. unfair for Sanju. So I mean, but possible solution in your point of view. Well, I think the first thing that you need to know is that international sport is not supposed to be fair. Like, Brad Haddon missed half a career because Adam Gilchrist was around and there are other... Darren Berry was a better wicketkeeper than um, Adam Gilchrist and Ian Healy probably would have wanted to play a couple more years. It's not fair. But if you want to develop your talent, you probably have to stick with them. The biggest problem I think Indian cricket could have is it they just keep giving everyone four or five tests and then discarding them if they haven't made runs in four or five tests. A, it's very hard to make runs at the moment. Um, slightly different for your bowlers at the moment, certainly you've seen bowlers, but it's very hard to make runs at the moment. So you shouldn't just be giving them four or five tests. You actually need to give players a proper run. The other thing, as you said, is that's how you develop. That's how you learn. How, you know, It's going to be very hard for Shreya Sire to learn just playing a lot of A cricket, although that, as the previous uh, we talked about in the previous question, that would certainly help him and, and lots of other players. But essentially, there are there are parts to playing Test cricket that you can only get from playing Test cricket, and so if, if when you talk about it being unfair, it's like at a certain point, India just have to decide on the players that they think have the most talent and stick with them for a little while. That's that's how it's always worked, and that's that's how that's how sport is. If you're a professional athlete, that's you know, Glenn Glenn Chapel is a fantastic cricketer. Um, and Glenn Chapel never played a test match because of the era that he played in. These things happen. There are absolutely fantastic spinners and all-rounders and bowlers and keepers that just never get in. Um, uh, Matthew Innes, who um, was he working? He's working with one of the uh, with with one of the um, teams recently, I think. Um, uh, you know, Matthew Innes is uh, was a fantastic cricketer in Victoria and never played a test match. There were many players like that through bad luck, who just don't get a go. Uh, that's just how it is. Okay, so basically what you're trying to say, like, if, let's say, okay, for the future, regardless of the finest talent in world cricket right now, 
and if there's a question and, uh, in the test team the first spot is reserved for rohit sharma and second spot there are people vying like agarwal prithish or gill and then if you feel from the current the data that prithish is more talented or has higher potential then you should continuously back uh, prithish it's not about continually backing them uh, you have to make sure that they have a game for the next level so if there are obvious errors within their technique that won't stand up um there are lots of people who are very good at making runs at first class level but it doesn't always translate perfectly to test matches but the absolute worst selections are not when someone gets selected out of nowhere and then is dropped in two test time the worst selections are those the worst selections are the dropping the, that player right because that means as a selector you're basically saying you have no idea what you are doing you have selected this person and then straight away you've gone oh i've i've got this wrong right uh, there was a very famous one in the women's nba draft recently where someone was selected like 7th in the draft and wasn't even signed to camp that's not her problem right she it's not that she wasn't good enough that is terrible if you drafted someone and they were of no no way helpful for you as a team right and it's the same with cricket we see it all the time like if you're picking someone and then they get there and you're like oh this was wrong then your selection policy is wrong so whether you think the player is the most talented or the second most talented or the third most talented, at a certain point, you have to say, we have to give this player a, a fair run at this so we can understand. Players can, you know, you can be dropped five times in your first three innings um, and score 200s, but then in the next eight innings, um, you know, really, really struggle. And the team has to be honest and go, we saw that with Dom Bess in, in India. They didn't drop him because his record was bad. They dropped him because they realized he just wasn't going to be able to do the job that they needed him to do, and he got lucky so far. Um, and so they decided to take that call. You know, that's what you can do when you've seen a player play 10 times. That's not what you can do if you only see them twice, and then you try the next young guy, and then it's the next young guy, and you end up on this carousel where you just keep picking people who are like the next hot thing. And it's like, well, if you don't let any of these players develop, you're hoping that one of these guys comes in and makes 100 on debut. And sometimes they will, and then they'll go overseas and they won't make 100 for five tests. You have to be realistic. Uh, but thanks for your question, mate. Have a good day. Kushiga, you there? Yeah, so uh, I have one quick question regarding the entire BCCI Kohli saga. So, I haven't been following it, but go ahead. Is it really that difficult? So the reason cited for Kohli being removed was that it's really tough for a team to have two different white ball captains. Is it, yeah, really the case? Is it really tough for an international team to have two white ball captains? Nah, no. Uh, look, it's tough. In an ideal world, you'd have one coach and one captain, right? But I don't know how that works anymore. I don't know how one, one or two people can plan for all those different things. Also travel that much. Um, so realistically, I would think in, in general... Uh, you will have to split up all the jobs and we'll probably, we'll get to a point where we might have three captains and three coaches um, going forward, um, certainly in multiples. Is it difficult to have, I mean, you know it's not difficult because you know that we've had a, a, a test captain and a one-day captain before. So you know that we can have a T20 captain and an ODI captain. It's, an, it's a nonsensical thing. Clearly they wanted to move him on uh, for whatever reasons. Uh, you'd have to talk to them. Um, and they won't talk to anyone. Um, uh, but but realistically, no, it's not that difficult to have two different captains. No one thinks that. No one who's followed cricket. Yep. So do you see Virat Kohli getting dropped if he doesn't do something outstandingly well with his bat because he's gone completely rogue and against whatever BCI is. I do. It's Kohli versus BCI at the moment. 
Uh, I think a lot of that will probably settle down. I don't think it will end in him being dropped. I don't think it will end in a KP situation because Coley and, and the VCCI make too much money for each other. Mm, yeah. Follow the money is my guess. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that Coley's not angry at the moment and probably has rights to be. I, I, my dealings with the BCCI is they're just not very good at communicating things. They're very unprofessional as well. Um, there's a few really good professional staff there, but in general, yeah, their way of releasing things is via Boria, right? And so it's that's not a professional way of handling things. And so they've let this story get away from them, which, you know, they're not the only cricket board in the world. Hello, Yorkshire. Um, to to handle um, press badly of recent times, but they've let this story get away from them when they really never needed to. Think you know they could have been open and honest. Um, they weren't open and honest. Um, they're very rarely open and honest, and this one's come back to bite them on the ass. Usually, a player like Coley would just nod, right? But he doesn't have to nod because he's Coley. Thanks for your question, Danny. Hi. Hey, doing, mate? What's your question? I'm good. I'm just a bit of a depressed England fan at the moment. I was just wondering if you were Joe Root, what would be your sort of five-man bowling attack you'd have picked for this Adelaide test? Because it doesn't seem like they've been hugely effective overnight. For this Adelaide test? Well, I wouldn't have picked the Gabba test, which is what has caused them to pick this Adelaide test lineup. So I probably would have had Broad playing um, ahead of Leach at the Gabba, which would then have allowed me to play, and and I probably would have tried to... Would I have tried to play Wood back-to-back? Actually, I'm not sure I would have. Um, but that would have allowed me to have a slightly different attack. But honestly, I don't think England bowled particularly bad last night. Um, I don't think they've bowled particularly bad in this series so far. Um, they haven't had a lot of luck, and I think the especially Manus Labuschagne and well, Manus Labuschagne at the Gabba and um, David Warner um, here at Adelaide, I thought were exceptional. And then vice versa, they both had a lot of luck in other innings. But that's really but what's been breaking England's back is that little bit of luck, and the, and then the other guy batting really well to not open up an end. Um, but yeah, I, I did think England bowled okay, but. If you if you have a situation where Mark Wood is your fast bowler and you don't want to risk him, but you are willing to risk Ben Stokes, who was already looked injured in the last test and was injured before the last test, um, into bowling a bunch of bounces, um, then something's gone horribly wrong. Now, obviously, part of this is the fact that Joffre is not available because he Joffre is you know allows them to cover two things: line and length and bounces. Um, and he would make a huge difference to this lineup. And Ollie Stone, obviously, they would have liked to have dropped him in as well. But I think that would have been the plan. But they've ended up with a bunch of right arm seam at Adelaide Oval, and their right arm seamers didn't take the wickets. And so um, they're now a long way behind in the game. But, uh, you know, I think the original mistakes were probably back at the Gabba more more so than this test. That This is just what they were left with um, from, from what happened at the Gabba. Yeah, I agree. Cheers, mate. Devdut, are you there? Hey, Jared. Jared. I wanted to ask a question about Australian T20 crickets. I was I went to a BBL yesterday and mm-hmm. uh, just got me thinking. Do you think there's a scope of a lower-grade T20 cricket competition which is broadcast? Not broadcast maybe on television, but via uh, digitally in Australia, which includes all the premier cricket competitions so that... There's a flow of, uh, if not super talented, but a good bunch of Australian local cricketers who could go up uh, the BBL competition. And there's a lot of data around them, which will allow uh, BBL 
to uh, be build guy or teams to recruit better in a way that mm-hmm. uh, because there there's not going to be a lot of international australian cricketers going to be available to play bbl because of test cricket so just wanted to know is there is there a market for it firstly and would that would is that something which would help bbl in terms of there's no market for it i don't think i don't think it would make a lot of money but that you know if it makes the big bash better and it makes the Australian T20 team better than it's worth it. They have the Baby Bash. I don't know if you're aware of the Baby Bash, but that's like the second 11 version, uh, which I used quite a bit when I was working um, in and around the Big Bash. Um, it's a really good competition, uh, a bit like most Australian second 11. You know, it's it's almost like the second division of the Blast. Like, it's a really strong level of cricket. Um, I think if you're going to do it properly, yeah, you would have, I don't think you'd have like the Premier League teams or anything like that, but maybe what you would have is, I don't know, three teams from Sydney, two teams from Melbourne, you know, team from Launceston, um, uh, some regional teams, you know, Northern Queensland based teams, a Darwin team, those sorts of things. I don't think there's that, like knowing what the budget of the Big Bash is, they just don't have the money to do it, uh, would be my guess. Uh, I think, to be fair, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the the people who run the Big Bash are very American sports conscious. You only have to watch the Brisbane Heat um, to know that they steal all their nicknames from NBA and baseball references. There's a lot of people over there that know about that, that sort of stuff. I think in their ideal world, they would want to do stuff like that, but they're a long way short. The Big Bash doesn't make that much money. I think it's the best way of explaining it. Um, and what you and I are talking about would actually cost a bit of money to put on. And I don't, they would certainly not recruit recoup that. Um, and if you want to do it properly, you certainly wouldn't make any money off it. Um, uh, although, you know, you know, maybe in 10 years' time you might. And you, you also, if you think about it from a growing the game perspective, um, you're not going to have that many big bash games in Alice Springs and Darwin and North, North Queensland and Launceston, Devonport, those sorts of places, regional, um, you know, um, uh, hubs in Victoria and New South Wales and South Australia and Western Australia. Um, but a bit like minor league baseball teams or G League uh, basketball teams, you could actually have, prof- you know, professional teams there that at least people could still connect with um, and see, as you said, the, the stars of tomorrow. But I, I would doubt that it would ever make enough money. Uh, but thanks for your question. William. Yeah, how you doing? I'm very good. What's your question? Well, I totally agree with you about left armers. As a fairly mediocre club left armer in part, <laughs> can get in the team on pure novelty. Because like you say, you can take the ball away as a, as a spinner. And, and I remember we had three playing in one game, totally unjustified, mainly because of that pure novelty. Mm. That said, and you have slightly addressed this in an earlier question, but would you have risked someone like Leach today for England when you've seen what five right armors of similar pace look like on a flat deck? Because it feels like 600 for five to me tomorrow and, and good night. I also... Leach is obviously a risk given the, mm. you know, propensity to go around the park. So, you know, what other options were there, basically? I wouldn't have picked Leach because I saw what he did at Brisbane as well as what the Seamers did today. And as I said, I thought the Seamers bowled well. They might not have got the wickets and obviously Butler cost them a couple of times, um, but I thought they bowled well. I didn't think they... I thought they could have bowled a little bit straighter and a little bit fuller, but certainly Australia struggled to get away from them at all all stages. And, you know, had the second new ball worked... Um, that would have been a completely different situation. Okay, so if you, you go with Leach, Leach is going to be spinning the ball back into six of Australia's 11 batters. Well, actually, is it less now? Oh, they've changed the lineup, haven't they? I have to check my numbers. But 
A lot of batters. <laughs> was it, it would be depending on when Mitchell Stark would bat at nine. So still a lot of left-handers in 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 the in the top order, and he'd be spinning the ball back into left-handers on, on a pitch that has uh, short boundaries. There's if you slog sweep or sweep um, there, uh, and there's nothing to stop you slog sweeping or sweeping Leach in that he doesn't get any overspin on the ball and he's not tall. It means they could basically have swept him all day. Um, and I don't know what he could have done with his skill set to be able to overcome that. So then you've got to look at England's bigger pool of spinners. What they really needed was a gun off spinner, someone like Gareth Batty of three or four years ago, who they could just go, look, uh, we're only going to, we're going to take you out. You probably won't play a test. And then after the first test, they go, actually, we changed our mind. You're going to play in this test. He probably only plays in one or two tests, but. Batty is a good enough bowler that he could have bowled to the right-handers without getting absolutely hammered. Um, he knows where to put the ball. He's confident in what he can do. Um, and he would have been a handful to the left-handers. They don't have that guy. As far as I'm aware, there is no gun off-spinner um, experience. Don Best. Yeah, so Don Best is the closest guy. And Don Best can't control his length, uh, which is very dangerous uh, when you're uh, when you're bowling to, um, as I said, guys who will try and sweep you on short square boundaries. I still think Don Best probably should have played in the first test um, if they were desperate for a spinner ahead of Leach. And I still think he probably should have played in this test um, if Leach had played. Um, he He's more like an Australian off spinner and then he gets overspin. Uh, he's got that weird sort of into-in action, which is, I suppose, a little bit more like a Nathan Lyon or Will Somerville, both of which are essentially Australian spinners, even though Will Somerville plays for New Zealand. Um and I think he's more like that, but he's not as accurate as either of those guys. And he really we need Lion, don't we, to be English? That's... <laughs> well, the thing is that if you look at the numbers in the last since Nathan Lyon played uh, started playing Test cricket, the overseas spinners in Australia averaged sixty-two, no sixty, and he averages thirty-two. Right? That tells you everything you need to know. He is a spinner that is set up to be good in Australia, and no other spinners are. So that includes guys like Harath and Swan and Ashwin and whoever else have come out, good spinners, Yassir Shah, they have all struggled. It is tough to bowl spin in Australia. So throwing in someone like Leach, who didn't have any of the skills to be able to do it and was going up against a bunch of left-enders, wasn't going to work. Throwing Bess in probably wouldn't work either. Throwing Parkinson in where he's got to bowl to a bunch of left-handers, again, probably wouldn't have worked. Mason Crane might have been interesting because he does get a bit more extra overspin. But I don't think there's a spinner in English cricket who really deserves to be there. Moen Ali would have struggled as well. Um, they really, you know, the bigger problem is that England don't have what you would call all-round spinners. So spinners who can bowl on flat pitches. Um, and I think Bess was the one they were hoping that would develop, and he's taken a step backwards. And that's because they probably promoted him far before he was ready. And the biggest problem was Bess before was... before he got lucky, and I agree with that completely in his first yeah. 10 tests. And I think England knew that, but it's a really, you know, we we're talking about it before with the Indians. So it's really hard to pull someone out when they're taking wickets or making runs, right? Even if you're looking at all the data and going, this person should actually be averaging 45 and they're averaging 28. And I don't know if it was quite that stark with Don Best, but I think it was pretty stark. And, you know, him having success was probably the worst thing. He should have come in, played against South Africa, and then they could have gone, okay, we know where he is now. Let's take it back. Let's let him play a bunch of A-tours, and then let's get him ready for Australia because that's really where we're going to want him. By the time he's got to Australia, he's kind of a bit broken, Don Bess. 
And then Australia A went after him, which they were always going to do, the same way that Australia went after Leach. They want to cause this problem. Um, and they've been allowed to because the England spinners just aren't good enough. And I think that that's the, the basic thing that we're saying here is that the England spinners aren't good enough. Yep, I agree completely. No worries. Well, thanks for your question, mate. Thanks, Jared. Cheers. Gregory. Hello. How you doing? What's your question? My question is uh, related to leg spinners and tests. Like, sure. is it just me or have there been a, are there less leg spinners now than there used to be before? Well, when are we talking about? There weren't many in the 60s, 70s and 80s. So like, say after the likes of Vaughn and Kumble, you really didn't see many leg spinners, right? Yes, after after Warren and Kumble, there wasn't as many leg spinners. Um, cricket has changed after Warren and Kumble, though. Uh, DRS has come in. Uh, it's easier probably to bowl the straighter balls if you're a off spinner or, or a left arm finger spinner than than as a wrist spinner. Um, also, a lot of the very good t- uh, test bowlers probably went off to T20 cricket. Um, so I think we probably lost a couple of, a couple of wrist spinners there, whereas the money isn't as high for finger spinners, so they have kept with their their skills. But I think DRS has probably played the biggest part. But also before Warren and Cumbly, you want to give me the list of the great leg spinners we'd had over the previous thirty years? I'll wait. There aren't many, right? They don't come along that often, right? Occasionally we get a clump of them, but they don't come along very often. Um, Abdul Qadir was basically bowling on his own with guys like Peter Sleep and, you know, um, who, who else? Um, Hawani, a couple of tests. Um, you know, leg spin, leg spin is a hard art. And I think if anything, it's probably harder in test cricket now just because batters are willing to punish the bad balls more drastically than before. Um, you probably won't get away with a loose leg spinner in the way that you would have in previous generations. But I think we were lucky to have as many as we did. But I think we would we're probably losing a few now to um, uh, to T uh, Twenty cricket as well, which is probably also fair. So it's probably uh, you know two or three different factors there. Yeah. Okay. And like, and the thing with the off spinners now, like you compared Murali and Ashwin, is it similarly because of DRS that they? Stopped, you know, trying to do a dosra. Uh, the has gone out of fashion. No, the dosra went out of fashion because we actually started calling them. They started being called as no balls. Well, actually, they weren't called as no balls, were they? They should have been called as new, no balls. But bowlers started getting um, um, their actions um, uh, taken to task. So we had, we basically had a free period from what 2008 to or maybe 2007 to 2014, where some of the actions were horrendous and should not have been allowed in international cricket. Some some of the balls that Johan Bota was bowling, um, Shane Shillingford were bowling, absolutely dog shit. Not even close to what bowling should be. Um, and we had a crackdown and the Dusra was the first thing that was cracked down on because it's almost impossible to bowl that within 15 degrees. I think that you can, you can do it, but very rarely. And you pr- probably consistently it would be almost impossible. Great. Okay. Thanks. No worries. Cheers. Keshav, you there? Hi, Jared. How you doing? What's your question, mate? I'm good, actually. Uh, uh, Gregory just took that question out of my throat, literally, because I was about to ask that same question about leg spinners uh, not being there anymore in tests. But I've changed my question. So, Mickey Arthur just recently, you know, uh, moved to Derbyshire from Sri Lanka. So, how do you see the timing of that? Because, you know, Sri Lanka was just started 
starting to bloom under him and you know did uh show encouraging signs at the world t20 and, and then you know the uh, way they played test cricket against uh, west indies as well so you know with another world cup in less than 12 months and an india tour as well on the horizon how do you how do you see that decision because i felt there was a little bit of selfishness over there because he said i've been living in hotels for the last 5 years so i'll i'll have a proper home apartment in derbyshire you think that's selfish that i mean that seems like a realistic thing for me look to be honest he knew he was going to get fired that's why he left because all sri lanka does is fire coaches if you want the honest answer that's why he left he knew he wouldn't be there that long anyway and he wouldn't even after they performed well in the world cup What does that got to do? Have you been following Sri Lankan cricket for the last decade, right? It doesn't matter how well they perform or how poorly they perform. Coaches come and go. There's no job security there. It's an absolute shit show with their administration. If you get the Sri Lankan job, the absolute best thing you can do is book your next job in. And if he was offered a good job, um probably maybe in a place part of the world he likes or maybe he just thought it would be a good long-term job, take it. I would certainly take a county job over um from Sri Lanka. When when I was there with TalkSport, they literally offered every commentator on TalkSport a coaching job. I don't know what would happen if they'd all taken them. It's so unprofessional over there. No, I I don't blame anyone for for leaving Sri Lankan cricket. The only reason I asked is by the looks of it it felt like it was his decision and you know uh, he he could have continued uh, for another year or so. It looked like that. Yeah, but you say another year or so, right? That's not a lot of job security, right? That's a big difference. If he if he if he goes to county cricket now, he's going to make good money as a county cricket coach even in a smaller county. He probably his job is safe for let's say between anywhere between 3 and 5 years, you would think unless Derbyshire are absolutely terrible. And also he can spin that into a school coaching job in England so he doesn't have to leave England at the end, right? That's a big difference between it doesn't matter how successful or not he was at Sri Lanka. um there are young side coming through they're going to have up and down results he would have been fired or he would have been had his contract not um resigned because someone else would have wanted someone else to coach the same thing has happened again and again over there um it's why they keep losing good coaches it's why coaches don't want to coach them because they're terrified that you know they'll move their family over there and then they won't they won't be there in 6 months time it's a terrible environment for a coach to be in so to speak uh, now jayawardena has been put in as consultant coach for a year yeah i don't even know what that means i'm still very confused about that if we're being honest but yeah i mean why do you think kumar and mahela don't want the job <laughs> i mean they're not idiots they can make more money elsewhere with better job security right they're, they're... i just felt the dish was left half cooked over there but if it's not miki arthur's fault then i guess sri lanka is themselves to blame look even even if it's miki arthur's fault right he took that job because of everything slonka had done beforehand right so even if even if you're right in his best case scenario and they're like no this is our guy we're finally going to keep him the reason that they didn't that he hasn't stayed is because of everything they did beforehand not to mention just the political interference it's a terrible job it really is one of the worst jobs in cricket it's such a shame because obviously it's a cricket a uh, proud place what they've done in a in a short period of time in international cricket is nothing short of astonishing um but the way the politicians get involved the way that the Sri Lankan cricket board is run pathetic um and they deserve to lose a good coach if we're being honest because of what they've done not the fans and not the cricketers but the um the board deserve to 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 get a kick up the ass because of the way they've treated so many other good coaches that they've had before uh cheers for your question mates and i got one last one Trinath you there Jerakini 
I can. Last question. Shoot. Yeah. So, okay. So, it's on Joss Butler. So, I've been talking to a bunch of English fans who are again moaning about folks not playing in place of Butler. So, my question is that, so, English management, uh, like, see something and believe something about Butler and they have been backing them. Im has the first keeper, head of Barstow and the folks. So, do you think, is there a rational behind it or it's just because of his white ball uh, talent that they have backed him up? It would be fair. He has the third best test of batting average in, in, the, um, in the team. Uh, so... He's not a complete dud. Uh, look, I would never have got rid of Bairstow for Butler. I thought the minute they brought Butler into that team as a specialist number seven batter was about the stupidest thing I've ever seen. It caused such a division in that change room. Uh, it, I, I honestly believe it played a big part in Bairstow losing his mind um, and really struggling ever since. So they should have an extra batter in that team who was averaging over 35 in Johnny Bairstow, and they don't. Then, then they had that ridiculous situation where they allowed folks to keep ahead of Butler. Yeah. So again, you've now you've got Butler in the team, and you're now not letting him keep. The way that they handled it was terrible. I don't think there's ever been a player who has. I, I, I'm happy to be proven wrong with this, but I don't think anyone ever has. There's never been a player who can't make a lot of runs in first class cricket. So let's say an average of 37 plus in first class cricket who is really good in white ball cricket, who is then really good in test cricket. Does that make sense? I can't find a batter who, f- who fits that profile. And I've looked, man. I've looked. And Aaron Finch and Alex Hales and Josh Butler and all these other guys that teams have tried and, you know, um, we've seen West Indian uh, players tried. And we it, it, If you can't make ball, uh, runs against the red ball consistently in first-class cricket, Chances are you're not going to do it in test match cricket. And playing white ball cricket is completely different when the ball only swings for a little while and when it goes flat and when you've got to roll and all these different parts of it. I just think it's it's silly. And we've seen teams try it again and again and again, and it never works. And uh, we know it doesn't work. So for me, um, I that is why I had the problem with Butler. I don't think Butler's been terrible, um, but I also don't think he's been that much better. I don't think Butler's averaged that much more than folks would average. Um, and I think folks is a better wicketkeeper. And I think bringing Butler in really did play with Johnny Bairstow's uh, mind in a way that didn't work. The other thing is that what's Butler's strike rate? Unless I'm wrong, it's like it's it's still roughly what Kane Williamson's is. He might have gone past Kane Williamson recently, but it's about the same of Kane Williamson. What sort of impact is that strike rate making for you? It's nothing. So they haven't even got the fast strike rate that they've got. They've had a couple of innings where he's been incredible. They've actually had a couple of innings where he's really struggled to get away. And that's because he's not a particularly good red ball player. Um, You know, and they can't bat him any higher in the batting order. I think they tried, didn't they? You know, six is about as high as you can get him. Um, Five is really pushing his batting. I, I really don't think he would ever make runs consistently batting at number five. So again, they've, they've got a bunch of guys that can already bat number seven. That was part of the problems with Moen Ali. Um, so you, you had a situation where Bairstow batting at six and Moen Ali batting at seven, I thought was perfect. And then you could have Sam Curran or Wokes at eight. Um, you know, Butler doesn't quite fit into that pattern either. I think he would prefer to bat at seven, um, all things being considered. It's just, I, I think... I. This isn't against Joss Butler because I think he's a fantastic cricketer and he's one of my favourite batters in, in the world to watch. But I think the whole situation was just stuffed up from beginning to end. And um, I think it's cost English cricket 
um, uh, a, a lot, and I don't think they've gained much from it, if anything. Um, and uh, I think, if anything, we've learned it's very easy to bat at number seven compared to batting higher up in the order. That's about all we've learned from the Josh Butler experience so far. And, um, uh, uh, you know, he's not as good a wicketkeeper as, as Ben Folks. Ben Folks might have dropped those catches as well. I think um, Josh Butler has something like six career first-class stumpings despite the fact that he spent most of his time keeping in uh, for Somerset um, and has kept to wicket-taking spinners like Moen Ali and Jack Leach. Um, I don't think that's an accident because I've seen him miss a lot. He, I've seen him miss more stumpings, way more stumpings at the international level than he's taken. Um, so I think he's actually got a, he's got some technical flaws with his wicket-keeping and his batting hasn't gone to the level that it should have gone to. But I don't blame him for this. I blame Ed Smith. Ed Smith tried to prove a theory, and I think it's a theory that has never been proven. No, but do you see, like, England management at some point replacing him with Bastow or even Fawkes? So I thought that the Indian series might be Butler's last series, but do you remember he got a late call-up? I thought that might have been his swan song. I, I think he even he might just... He's going to make all his money in white ball cricket. That's what he's great at. He's not great at test cricket. If I was him, I'd be like, do you know, I tried and I played and I'm proud of what I did but I'm going to go off now and I'm going to be the best teacher. I'm going to be the new AB de Villiers and I'm going to spend all my time doing that. He shouldn't be spending any of his time on, on being – like if, if, you, if you were doing talent management within the, in English cricket and you look at his numbers, you would say, mate, go get better at white ball cricket. We don't need you in red ball cricket. We can cover you in red ball cricket. We can get a player that's at least as good as you with the bat there and thereabouts and is probably better with you at the, with the gloves. That's what I would be doing. I mean, you would probably be the white ball captain, right, once Morgan calls – yeah, and that's the other thing as well. I think you're probably right. Uh, I, I mean, I, I suppose that depends on Stokes as well, but he's certainly in that frame. So for me, no, I, I wouldn't. I, I would have a heart-to-heart -heart with Josh Butler as well. Bit, you hear things, whether they're true or not, I don't know. But I've heard that he is thinking of making a similar decision. And he might go the other way. He might decide not to make it as well. But I, I've certainly heard that he has at least thought about his future in red ball cricket, which is fair. I, I mean, you know, I, I can understand that when you're that good at the other formats. Uh, and as I said, that, you know, he could become the next AB de Villiers. He's that good at white ball cricket. Um, uh, absolute incredible talent. And as you said, there might be there might be more stuff on, on his shoulders uh, when Owen Morgan moves on from the white ball team as well. Okay. No worries. Thank you so much for your questions. Uh, in fact, thank you everyone for your questions. Uh, that was a good fun one. I'll be around sometime next week. I have no idea when. Huge shout out to the Patreon people. Uh, it's in the show notes. You can find it everywhere. But if you can support us on Patreon, that would be great. If you just want to buy me a coffee, well, I didn't drink coffee, buy me a Coke Zero or a Cordial or a water, bourbon. Those are the things I generally drink. Milk. I don't really drink milk. I don't know why I said no. Uh, you can go on Buy Me A Coffee, Jared Kimball, however you find it, um, and do that. But if you want to support us on Patreon regularly, that's how we, you know, without Patreon, we wouldn't be able to do this second podcast a week. If we can get Patreon to a certain level, then we'll be moving to three podcasts a week as well. Uh, we'll be able to hopefully start paying some of our guests when they come on also. So that would be absolutely great going forward. Also, just a big shout out to Manscaped. As I said before, if you want your balls to be smoother, go to manscaped.com, put in the code uh, REDINCA, all one word, get 20% off free worldwide shipping. Shave your balls while you think of me. Anyway, if you want to find this podcast and you've come halfway through this green room and you're not sure uh, where to go, you could certainly go on YouTube. It will be up and it will, be also, it will be up on REDINCA in a couple of days as well. 
And William Russell has said, don't forget to plug the Substack. I do have a Substack if you want to go on my emailer. So I write quite a bit during games. Uh, in fact, I'm going to go now and I'm going to post a piece to Substack. Thanks for listening or watching or whatever you did. Mm -hmm.